Good morning. Welcome to Back Chat. I'm Danny Gittings. Your guest presenter this morning is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Danny. <laughs> In our main topic today, we're going to be looking at university rankings as free Hong Kong universities make it into the top 10 of the Times Higher Education latest Asia University rankings. Chinese University and Hong Kong University of Science and Technology have both climbed up the table since last year while Hong Kong U retains its position as Asia's fourth best university for the fifth consecutive year. Other local universities such as PolyU and CityU also climbed up the rankings this year, but there was a slight drop in the ratings for international outlook of Hong Kong's universities as a whole. So how important are university rankings? Are Hong Kong universities doing enough to attract non-Chinese speakers? And do local students still prefer to study overseas instead of at top universities in Hong Kong? After 9.45, we're going to be looking at a new rule requiring banks to register before sending SMS messages to their customers. Let us know what you think on both topics. You can leave a message here on our, on our Facebook page, Backchat uh, back on RTHK Radio Free. Email us at backchat at RTHK, RTHK or give us a call. The number there, 233-88266. Joining us uh, for the uh, first segment of the show, we have in our Queensway studio, uh, Professor G G Gerard Postiglione, who is uh, Emeritus Professor and Honorary Professor at the University of Hong Kong and the Coordinator of the Consortium for Higher Education Research in Asia. We also have on the line uh, Professor Ho Lok San. Professor Ho is a Senior Research Fellow at the uh, Pan Tong Economic Policy Research Institute at Lingnan University and uh, Sabrina Ma, who's Associate Consulting Partner at uh, Quantum, which is an overseas university and mission consulting firm. Uh, good morning, um, Professor Postiglione. Let's go to you first. Um, how, 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 much, how important are these uh, university ranking surveys? What should we make of these latest results? Uh, we can't actually hear you at the moment. Uh, try again. Hello. Yes, we can hear you now. Hello, I'm Jerry Postiglione from the University of Hong Kong. I hope you can hear me. We can, indeed. And I did get the question, <laughs> and it uh, is about the significance of these rankings. I think they are significant in the sense that they do elevate Hong Kong's branding globally. I don't know if you're aware that Hong Kong has the highest number of globally ranked universities of any world city. That includes uh, New York, Tokyo, uh, San Francisco, and so on. However, we need to uh, not overemphasize uh, these rankings. They are usually uh, tied to uh, business enterprises that use them for various reasons, either for their readership, uh, to extend their readership, and they're also useful for families incre who increasingly use them when they make decisions about where to send their children to university. Uh, good morning, Professor. Um, this is Mike Rouse. Hi, Mike. Who are the top three in Asia? We, we're bragging about number four. in yeah. Asia, uh, from my point of view, the top three in Asia are all in Hong Kong. But from the <laughs> viewpoint of the rankings, and the rankings uh, have been studied in great detail. Let me put it this way. Uh, the, the global rankings with Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge, uh, Stanford, does it really matter who's number one, two, three, four, or five?
Not so much. I don't think so. So uh, the number one and two universities in the last couple, oh, two, three, four years have been Beijing University and Tsinghua University, both of which I'm very familiar with. I was a visiting professor there, and I know that they place great emphasis on the ranking. However, universities in China, uh, some of the top universities like Nanjing University, and which is a top 10 university, and uh, Renmin University have dropped out of the rankings recently. And I don't know if you're aware that the top law schools in America uh, uh, at, uh, at Harvard, Princeton, uh, have also dropped out of the rankings. So the, the bottom line here is that the rankings uh, do tell us some things, but we don't plan our uh, mission, our our university missions right. on the basis of the ranking. Thank you. When Just, they say dropped out, it means that they no longer provide the data to allow themselves to be ranked? Or, that's or the, correct. They no longer provide the data. However, the Times Higher Ed, QS, and, uh, and the other one, which is increasingly popular, is the U.S. News ranking. Uh, the U.S. News ranking, by the way, you should know, and I have an obligation to say that, in the U.S. News ranking, the Faculty of Education at the University of Hong Kong is ranked number one in the world in education research above Stanford University, Michigan State. Now, I, I'm a member, so I'm, using, I'm, ta I'm, I'm plugging it while I have an opportunity. But the point is that even though Nanjing University and Renmin University don't provide the data, as well Lanzhou University as well, the rating agencies still have the data, have access to it. So they will continue to rank those universities. Yes, I can see Nanjing it's, University on the list here at uh, number 19. Uh, right. just, just to uh, clarify for listeners, as was mentioned just now, uh, first and second on the list are Tsinghua and uh, Beida Peking University. Um, and number three is National University of Singapore. After that comes Hong Kong U, uh, followed by Nanyan Technology University in Singapore, and then Chinese U and HKUST, both of which have arisen since last year. Uh, let's bring in uh, Professor Ho Lok San, okay. Professor Ho um, from uh, Lingnan University. Uh, good morning, Professor Ho. What, what do you make of these rankings? And do they, um, do they attract um, overseas students to Hong Kong? Well, I, I think uh, for a, a lot of students, uh, these rankings do matter, you know, because uh, they are concerned about the CV. And so uh, students try to seek the, the top-ranking universities, you know, for admission. So, so they do look at these rankings. But uh, as was pointed out, uh, some major universities that are leading universities, uh, recognized as leading universities in the world, but they, they just want to drop out of these uh, rankings exercise at, at all, you know, because um, to them, uh, these rankings are often uh, misleading. And uh, um, in, in fact, uh, they, they serve some purposes for some people. But, uh, and of course, I know that some universities try very hard, you know, to push the rankings so, so that they can attract students. But um, uh, the fact is that uh, many of these rankings are indeed quite misleading in the sense that uh, <clears throat> they, they look at some, you know, they, they choose uh, the, the, the criteria, uh, which, uh, um, of course, some, some of those are, are pretty objective. Um, but they can 
not, uh, you, you know, it's like just like any index problems. You know, they they cannot really uh, uh, capture the uh, the overall um, spirit of the university and uh, the the performance of the university. Right. And uh, in in fact, uh, a lot of the um, you know the uh, the responses you know is very much dependent on people's uh, subjective. Uh, uh, evaluation. Right. What sort of so, criteria do they use? Is it how high the salaries are after graduation or things like this? Yeah, they they just thought that uh, um, being, you know, students just, just think that if they admitted to a university that is a uh, 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 leading university in the rankings, then they stand a better chance. Right. You know, in uh, uh, in the future in endeavors. But uh, uh, this means that a lot of universities in trying to compete for students actually um, spend a lot of uh, time and resources, you know, to to push up the the rankings. <laughs> to gain uh, the some system. Some universities actually yeah. set up special offices. Yeah. You know, to 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 promote that. But this is actually a waste of resources, you know, because yes. uh, instead of focusing on what uh, they should be doing, uh, which is uh, uh, teaching young uh, people, generating <laughs> uh, knowledge, you know, through research and also teaching, but they instead they are putting a lot of resources promoting themselves. Jerry, you look, and, you're nodding. Yeah. You're nodding vigorously there about gaming the system. Yeah, I. I, I agree with Holak Sang on this. It is it gets to be a game, and uh, universities try very hard. Some try much harder than others in setting up offices with and and trying to present the data in certain ways. Uh, we we need to be aware of this, and, and I'm sorry to say that the international media uh, has no choice but to. Um, uh, present these uh, for the public in, in, a, in a highly elevated way. It, it's interesting that the international media uh, toward Hong Kong's universities have been ignoring uh, in the last couple of years the rankings, but instead they've been playing on other problems uh, having to do with uh, academic freedom and so on, which they have a right to do and so on. But I think it would be good if they also balance and, and give some... Uh, visibility to uh, the good uh, the, the good that the universities and all of them I'm talking about uh, the system as a whole right uh, Holok Sang uh, as I mentioned at the start although individual Hong Kong um, universities have done quite well in this um, latest survey as a whole the uh, ranking for Hong Kong universities in terms of their internationalization has slipped slightly although still at a very high level more uh, more than 98%. Um, I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. I mean, there are um, sometimes suggestions that uh, our universities have been flooded with mainland students now and perhaps rather fewer students from um, other overseas countries than before. Yeah, I, I think uh, it is important for us to maintain that international uh, uh, image. Um, so so I, I think it's an important uh, dimension in the overall uh, ranking of the universities. Uh, but in the case of uh, Hong Kong, um, I think uh, more collaboration with mainland universities is, is important and also um, because the mainland I I indeed is a very important source of talent, you know, who would be interested to, to work here 
and also, you know, Hong Kong students uh, are also increasingly interested in some of those mainland universities, and uh, they, they also want to see opportunities there. And I think this kind of uh, uh, cross-border uh, collaboration and uh, um, taking advantage of the opportunities uh, that we provide and they provide, and I think it's really important. So, so I think uh, uh, um, this is pretty natural given the circumstances, you know, because of the... Uh, strategic importance between uh, uh, Hong Kong and the mainland. Right. Do these surveys include private universities or just publicly funded ones? They, yeah, all universities are, are, are supposed to be covered, you know, but uh, some of those private universities um, are actually uh, are ranked pretty high, you know. Because we've got uh, a few here, course, haven't we? Uh, not, not necessarily those in Hong Kong, but uh, some, some of them are, are also doing fairly well now um, but uh, some some of the you, you know even Harvard and Princeton <laughs> are private universities and 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 of course uh, private universities are, are, are always ranked you know uh, in, in all the rankings okay thank you very much uh, let, let's bring in the photo of our guests in this first segment uh, Sabrina Mize associate consulting partner at quantum an overseas university admissions consulting firm uh, good morning welcome to uh, back chat um, what, what do you make of these uh, survey findings Sabrina Mize? and particularly um, does it mean that um, students who might previously have thought about going to overseas universities will now maybe think twice and think about going to universities in Hong Kong instead Hi, um, thanks for having me. I'm Sabrina. Um, and as for your question, well, so the, the students we work with mostly do go to international schools in Hong Kong, so they do and are more accustomed to a certain style of education that is a little more flexible. So for the most part, a lot of students are looking more for the U.S. end of things, given the whole liberal arts education, not really having to choose a major or really decide on your path until, you know, a couple of years down the line. So in terms of how the rankings influence students' thinking, I will say that Hong Kong and the UK are very, very well known for very professional programs like law, like medicine, dentistry. Uh, These things, students will generally prioritize Hong Kong schools as uh, over U.S. universities, of course, because that does drag out the timeline quite a bit. But in terms of overall... (laughs) Sorry, continue. Oh, sorry, I thought someone was sorry. Um, So overall, I would say that most students will still, at least the students I work with, uh, do still usually prioritize applying overseas. How how much, good morning, Sabrina, how much is cost an issue for the students? Right, that also depends on the individual family and, and the student themselves and whether they would like to apply for things like financial aid, of course. Um, cost of education in the U.S. does generally is generally much higher than, let's say, staying in Hong Kong or going to the U.K. Um, for you know, for the parents and the, for the families that I work with, cost generally is not really so much of an issue. Though I have dealt with students that do seek financial aid or um, look for merit scholarships. These are things that we work with uh, oh. on with students as well. How about uh, Australia and Canada? So lots of students also do love to apply to Canada and Australia. Um, Australia is a bit of a different, they work on a different timeline, uh, given that, of course, their seasons are, are flipped 
So yes. for most of my students, they do apply to the U.S., the U.K., and Canada uh, in the latter half of the year first. And then if they, you know, are, if their results are unsatisfactory or they, they prefer going to Australia, then we move the timeline backwards and then we apply to Australia. But overall speaking, it's, it's still rather popular among students to apply to all of these countries at the same time. <laughs> you don't mention, I suppose you said you're dealing mostly with students from international schools, but you don't mention mainland universities when you're talking about applying outside Hong Kong, do you? Uh, rarely. I will have to say that it's, it's mostly down to the type of education and the style and also the learning environment and everything. Most students that I work with also are not all too comfortable with um, doing most of their classes perhaps in Mandarin. Um, most of them, I will say, probably have much better English um, skills than they do in, in Chinese. Though I will have to say that there has been an increase in interest in, in mainland universities. Um, I did have a student very much look into Tsinghua, look into Peking University as well um, over the last couple of years. Though I think that decision very much comes down to what the ultimate goal of the family and of the students are. Uh, if it is going to work in in mainland, then for sure that is that is a very you know that's a very viable path. Let's for go, a lot of students, mm -hmm. yeah. Let, let's sorry, let's interrupt. Let, let's go back to Professor Ho Sangers. He he has to go in a moment. But um, Professor Ho, um, you're still there. Yes, yes. yes, and you're listening to this uh, suggestion that there's still quite a large segment in Hong Kong that's not really considering studying on the mainland. What do you make of that? Well, um, I think uh, uh, that is uh, um, quite understandable uh, because of um, uh, this, um, what I would say, kind of cultural barrier at this time. You know, some people have yet to 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 see the mainland for what it is, and uh, they, they have a lot of doubts. But uh, it's important to, to look at the numbers, which are growing quite dramatically over the past few years. So, so in terms of uh, uh, actual numbers, absolute numbers, maybe they are not really that, that big, but uh, in terms of growth, actually, it's pretty impressive. Is language a big factor here, I would have thought? That if you're learning in, if you're comfortable in English, you're going to be looking for an English-speaking tertiary education, and yeah. you really have to got to have the Putonghua for uh, the mainland universities, unless any of them yes. are teaching mostly in English. Yes, I understand. Um, there was a um, survey recently uh, that, I, that I came across, uh, which says that uh, uh, primary students, you know, in Hong Kong, do better in Putonghua than uh, high school students. You know, a lot of high school students are still not really so comfortable with Putonghua. So, so it will take some time. And I think uh, eventually, you know, when the uh, younger cohort who, who are better trained in Putonghua, uh, they will look at those opportunities more um, fairly and perhaps also uh, based on their ability, they would feel more comfortable. Okay, thank you very much. That was Professor Holok San from uh, okay, Lingan University. Thank, thank you for joining us. Back chat this morning. Um, uh, um, uh, Jerry, thinking about this issue about um, the attractiveness of mainland universities, what, what is your take on that? 
Well, Holok Sang is correct. There has been an increase in the number of Hong Kong students going to the mainland. And, you know, as well, uh, before uh, 2020, uh, there was uh, there are many uh, overseas students. For example, there were over 12,000 students from the United States who went to the mainland to study for a while, a short term, long term. But that there are now only... Uh, 842 American students in the mainland. So for Hong Kong, uh, there has uh, not been a great number of, of Hong Kong students applying to the mainland, even under the preferential admission policy in which they can get access to the top 100 universities. But Holog Sang is correct. The numbers are still increasing at a pace. So we would expect that as the mainland universities, the entire system moves up market. Now, the top universities are very good, but the rest of the system is still relatively weak. And as that changes, you may find uh, more students studying in the mainland. Okay, thank you. Let's go back to Sabrina Ma, who's also leaving sure. us in a few hours. Um, um, Sabrina, you, you were talking about the different overseas destinations that um, your clients or Hong Kong students tend to go to. Um, have you seen any sh significant shift in the pattern over the past couple of years? I mean, there's well, 150,000 Hong Kong people have moved to the UK. Are we seeing an increase in interest in UK universities or is it still pretty much the same as it was a few years ago? Well, UK and US have always been very popular destinations. I, I will say that lots of students that we work with currently are at boarding schools. Um, so in terms of people moving out of Hong Kong, that is still um, the phenomenon we're, we're, we're seeing is, is lots of students choose to do their secondary education outside of Hong Kong as well. Uh, whether or not that hugely impacts where their tertiary education is, not necessarily. Um, Although I have been hearing a lot of concerns about safety um, in, in the U.S., particularly in the last year or two, it, it hasn't really deterred too many families from actually still applying, I'd say. Um, and, of course, the rankings do play into this in, in the sense that a lot of the top you know, universities in lots of the global rankings and the new U.S. news rankings are in the U.S. So for parents, for families, for students who might have very ambitious um, um, ideas about about career about you know research pathways u.s i would still say is one of the biggest um places that students would still love to apply to university and to. coming back to the choice between local and overseas universities which you mentioned earlier and you were saying you were saying that uh, most of your clients tend to prefer to go to overseas universities um how much of that is sort of push how much is that pull how much is it that they prefer the overseas universities and how much is the other side as you were saying that actually if they've been in international system or done ib or something like that it's actually quite hard to get a place or even adapt to going to a local university so in, in terms of how uh, we help students apply into local universities, they have two paths. One is the GPIS path and one is the non-GPIS path. For, so for students who are not studying the Hong Kong DSC, we would be going through the non-GPIS path. And in many ways, uh, for, for Hong Kong universities to attract more international background students, um, the entry requirements for most of the subjects are lower for the non-GPIS as in non-DSC uh, non students. So for students that do IB A-levels, um, it, it's not hugely all, like it's not as difficult, I'd say, to get into a local university as it is for perhaps DSC students. So most of the time, students do try for both. Um, it really does, at the end of the day, still depend on what it is they want. If it is a professional degree, if they want to get into a job straight out of, straight out of college, 
go become a lawyer or or continue their studies to become a doctor, then Hong Kong is always one of the first choices because of cost and efficiency. Right. Are, are, are Chinese students, I'm thinking ethnic Chinese students from wherever, are they still welcome in the U.S. or are they beginning to find some suspicion? That is very hard to say. I, I would have to say that it probably depends. Um, so... There are there are certain things uh, within the U.S. And, and how they look at the big word of diversity um, that that does you know start a lot of conversations with with people in in my industry and also educators all around the world as well. Um, it, it really does. So I, I'm not sure if, if I want to bring everyone's attention to a, a lawsuit that was that happened a couple of years ago uh, with Asian Americans and Harvard. So uh, Harvard, they, these students were suing Harvard for, for discriminating against them. But uh, the numbers were published and that Harvard actually had way more uh, Asian-American students than all the other uh, Ivy Leagues as well. So when it comes down to whether or not they're welcome, they, I would say in general they still are. But at the end of the day, these private universities still have a somewhat of a social responsibility to, to make sure the, the diversity of their student body is... is you know, yeah. equal. Right. I'm sorry, we'll have to cut you off there because we're going to the news and we're, we'll say goodbye for the moment to, uh, to Sabrina Ma. Thank you very much for joining us. But we're going to continue this discussion after the news. And if you have any thoughts, do email us at backchatterrthk.hk. Give us a call on 233 uh, The weather is going to be mainly cloudy with occasional showers and isolated thunderstorms at first. There are going to be sunny periods during the day. Maximum temperature will be 32 degrees. Currently 28 degrees, 93, relative it's 9.30, the news with Ben Jay. An education expert wants to see more practical tasks included in a new AI module that will be introduced in secondary schools in September. The module recommends that schools incorporate 10 to 14 hours of AI lessons into the three-year curriculum. But Chu Ka Tim, the chairman of the Hong Kong Association for Computer Education and vice principal of Hong Kong True Light College, says it may not be enough time for most students. The foreign ministry in Beijing says it supports its strategic partner Russia in maintaining national stability, but it stressed that disputes between Moscow and the Wagner Group are an internal affair for the country. And Greece's conservative New Democracy Party appears to have secured a decisive victory in the country's second general election in five weeks. We'll have more news for you at 10. There are always adversities in life. If you're emotionally distressed because of family conflict, debt, marital or interpersonal problems, and you don't know how to deal with the situation, please call Caritas Family Crisis Support Center's 24-hour crisis hotline 18288 to talk about it. A bend in the road is not the end of the road. If you're willing to seek help, you will find a way. The Occupational Safety and Occupational Health Legislation, Miscellaneous Amendments Ordinance 2023, is in effect, and the maximum penalties have been raised. Contravention of the legislation can result in a maximum fine of $10 million and two years imprisonment upon conviction. Consequences of violating the legislation are serious. Employers, employees, and duty holders, let's follow the law and join hands to prevent work accidents.
Welcome back to Backchat. I'm Danny Gittings. Your guest presenter today is Mike Rouse. In the second half of the show, we're going to be continuing our discussion about um, Hong Kong universities and indeed um, universities around the world on the back of the latest university ranking survey from the Times Higher Education, uh, Times Higher Education Later Asian University Rankings, which uh, put uh, Chinese University, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology and um, Hong Kong U, of course, all in the top 10. Our, our guests in the uh, second half of the show are still with us, uh, Professor G- uh, Gerard Postigloni, um, who's the coordinator of the Consortium for Higher Education Research in Asia and is at the University of Hong Kong. Also joining us now is uh, Shalini Matani. Shalini Matani is the founder of the uh, Jubin Foundation. Uh, later on, we'll be looking at the issue of um, uh, tightening up on SMS fraud with new registration rules for banks. Jerry, before we broke for the 9.30 years, you, you seem to be ha- having some things to say about the topics that the others were raising. Okay, shoot. Uh, Yeah, I'm trying to uh, recall because there were quite a few topics that we were discussing. And I I thought it might be a good time to move to into this issue of uh, non-native speakers, which you raised uh, for Hong Kong. Uh, It's a bit disappointing, I think, that... uh, uh, whereas in the mainland, the proportion of students of ethnic minority heritage uh, are, are represented in higher education in proportion to their population, just about, because that's about 9% of the population. Uh, in Hong Kong, I don't think we're at that stage where we could say that those non-native Chinese speakers in Hong Kong, particularly South Asians, are represented in higher education at the proportion that they should be as non-native Chinese speakers. Now, uh, I I just thought it'd be a good time to raise that. Why? Because part of the the philosophy of of having a, a, a very high quality education is that students are sitting in classrooms and engaging with others from different cultural backgrounds and a lot of learning takes place in that way as you know uh, my university is going to be having students in the dormitories living local students national students international students living together that's part of the reason and i think maybe we can put more of a focus on the 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 non-native particularly south asian community and there's this question of whether we they should be studying um Putonghua, like those in their home countries, uh, Nepalese students are studying Putonghua and, uh, uh, you know, Mandarin, rather, and and so are many students from India. Uh, I mean, in terms of China's foreign students, uh, you have the Koreans uh, as the highest number, and the Indians are about number two or three, and then, of course, Pakistan and so on. So I'm I'm sorry to raise that issue. Uh, I don't know if you want to go in that direction, but I thought it's an opportunity to... uh, No, thank you very much indeed for raising that now because uh, we are actually joined by Shalini Matani, who's the founder of the uh, Jubin Foundation, which uh, does a lot of work with um, uh, non-native Chinese speakers in Hong Kong. Good morning. Welcome to Backchat. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, now, what, uh, just following on from what was said just now, I mean, what, what, what do you think of, of how universities are treating not, non-native uh, Chinese speakers? Um, so, look, I think there has been a general level of improvement in the way universities are attracting ethnic minorities um, into, into the student workforce, the student force. 
However, um, I think that not enough is being done to look at ways where they can come out of university and actually get jobs. So as a foundation, the Zubin Foundation gives scholarships to low-income ethnic minorities in Hong Kong. Um, in 2020, we gave out 13 scholarships. And last year, we gave out 43 scholarships. But what we've seen is a, a huge increase in the number of applicants. So in 2020, we saw something like 80 people apply for scholarships, for those 13 scholarships. And last year, we saw over 200 people apply. So we are seeing an increase in the number of, of ethnic minorities wanting to go to university. However, even when they get into the top universities, the UGC-funded universities, they are not getting the same kind of jobs. And that's mostly because, I would say, um, for two reasons. One is, although their spoken Cantonese is very good, their ability to read and write Chinese is, is inferior to uh, many of the Hong Kong Chinese. And secondly, a lot of our graduates still uh, complain about um, direct discrimination on the grounds of their race and a gra on the grounds of their religion as well. Right. But in terms of getting into the universities, if English is the medium of instruction, uh, they should have good chances, as good as anyone else. Yes, but often what brings them down is um, they do not have DSC Chinese. And so for some programs, they would need DSE Chinese. For example, um, in order to do medicine in Hong Kong, and we have a number of our ethnic minority youth who are very keen to study medicine, their Chinese is not good enough. So what they do at school, secondary school, is most of the ethnic minority students in government secondary schools are discouraged from doing the DSE Chinese and encouraged to do the IGCSE Chinese, which is um, a far lower level of Chinese, particularly with reading and writing. So they just don't have the skills. So, so the government and universities have done a better job at including ethnic minorities and those with the IGCSE Chinese. However, they can't get into certain programs and when they graduate, they can't get the job. Mm. The other thing we're seeing is a lot of them are going into the community colleges rather than the UGC-funded universities. And with the private community colleges, they tend to be much more expensive and therefore prohibitively expensive for many of the ethnic minorities, and they have to find scholarships or they have to get loans somehow. So I, I'm not sure if your listeners knew that, but the UGC-funded universities are, are heavily subsidised, whereas the community colleges, which where you can have lower grades to get into, require um, higher fees to be paid. Okay, multifaceted problem. What are the solutions? I think one of the, the greatest solutions that we've been promoting is that 
Ethnic minorities are at a serious language deficit and will always be in a language deficit unless we try and solve that problem. And I think the way to solve the problem is not say, well, you should have studied harder when you were four years old or six years old. I mean, that's certainly one, one way. But hold on, you've graduated now from secondary school at 18. You realize your Chinese isn't great. So you can't be a doctor, even though you should be a doctor. Um, you've got all the skills except the ch- Chinese reading and writing. You know, the government should offer two years of mandatory learning, either Putonghua or Cantonese, reading and writing, um, a university program before you go and do your degree. So to give them a, a chance to make good on that Chinese deficit. Exactly. I think uh, Jerry's nodding uh, vigorously there. You, you, you introduced this topic. Any, any further thoughts from what you've heard? A- absolutely. I cannot understand why over so many generations this issue has not been seriously attended to. And in other countries, I mean, both China and the United States have all sorts of policies, preferential policies. Our problem here is language just as uh, Salili has mentioned, and there is no reason why uh, courses in Cantonese and Mandarin, intensive courses, cannot be funded by government with top-notch teachers and to measure the success of these students and get them jobs and get them jobs. Thank you. Absolutely, because we do have the talent pool. A lot of these kids are brilliant at math, they're brilliant at sciences, they're great in English. And time and time again, I've had very smart young women and men say to me, ma'am, I'm going to go work in a restaurant, but I'd really like to be a doctor. And this is shameful for Hong Kong. And part of the reason is the government has refused to set up a Chinese as a second language curriculum at school. And starting right from the beginning, presumably. Correct. So there's a second language framework, but... They are using, they're assuming when you come in at two and a half, three, you can quickly make up that language deficit, which is very difficult for those of us who've sent kids to Chinese schools. Unless you have someone at home helping with the hours of homework. Because there's no support in the family setting that would improve the language. Correct, but there's also no pedagogy to teach someone who doesn't have Chinese at home how to learn the language. Okay, before we move on to the next topic, let me bring in an email from a listener from Mike. That's not my co-host, uh, <laughs> another Mike. Um, on a slightly different theme here about the topic, it says, higher education or deeper indoctrination? Which is it? I think you all know, but program not to ask. After paying for the education of two doctors, I question whether it was worth it. After four years of teaching, the English literature professor walked away, claiming the glass ceiling is so low it would take decades to even make it pay. She had no interest in working for a university for low wages. Physicians' councils tend to think twice before ruining your life working for pharmaceutical companies and spending half your working life documenting every word you said and every treatment you performed to protect yourself from litigious ambulance-chasing lawyers that will soon have their jobs replaced by AI programs. Our education systems are broken and most often are decayed behind what would give you a life. Um, (laughs) 
Jerry, this is slightly different from what we've been discussing this morning. But I wondered if you, I mean, this is an issue that's come up in Britain a lot lately, hasn't it? I'm sure you're aware of the trends there where um, students are rebelling against sort of two years of, um, of Zoom lectures followed by their final essays not being marked about um, this broader issue of whether it's, it's, it, higher education is still worth paying for in the same way it used to be. It's, Mike obviously thinks not. Yes, yes, it's so great to hear, to listen to this program every morning because of the diversity of views <laughs> that we get. I mean, this is fascinating. All I can say, I suppose, given the time, is we're moving into a new era very quickly, an AI era which is going to have significant effects, I can tell you. Within the next year at the universities in Hong Kong, we are studying this in great depth and trying to figure out how to handle the, how to handle AI as universities around the world are. So for the, for the writer of that uh, note, hang on. We're coming. Uh, we will have some answers for you in the next year. Well, I think you're trying I don't to say... necessarily agree with, uh, <laughs> with the viewpoint expressed, but uh, I'm glad that uh, viewpoints can be expressed like that. What I think you're saying is that universities will remain relevant in the AI era and they can evolve, right? They will evolve. They have been around longer than any of the other major institutions in society for hundreds and hundreds of years. Except for maybe the the ch- church, the religious institutions, the synagogues, and the and the and the uh, the 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 the, the, uh, and, and, and the and the Buddhist temples, etc. So uh, I believe that uh, it will definitely uh, the universities will evolve. They have they're very flexible institutions. So oh. let, let's 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 talk to you next year. Okay, <laughs> we look forward to that. Okay, yeah. thank you very much. That's a good note to end our main uh, discussion this morning. Um, our thanks to uh, Professor Gerard uh, Postiglione, who's the emeritus professor and honorary professor, University of Hong Kong, and also the coordinator of the Consortium for Higher Education Research in Asia. And also joining us in the second segment was Shalini uh, Matani, a founder of the Jumin Foundation. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. I'm Gilly of Consumer Council. Happy birthday, LTHK, for your 95th anniversary. May I wish you always filled with positive energy, continue to discover and report accurate, impartial and objective consumer news for consumers to shop smartly every day. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. Welcome back to Backchat. In the final section of the discussion, we're going to be talking about oh, the plague on all of us who have mobile phones. Well, everybody has mobile phones these days, right? That um, you're receiving spam and uh, fake messages. A lot of the time with these junk messages, we just put up with it. But if they're coming from banks, they can actually, or they're purporting to come from banks, they can have disastrous consequences. A lot of people have lost money by uh, being faked uh, by, by, by um, spoof messages from banks and thinking that it's a genuine message from a bank and uh, transferring money to some scammer. Now the then now we are now the Office of Communications Authority announced uh, last week that they are going to try and do something about this. They plan uh, new guidelines, and uh, particularly uh, for banks, they're going to have to register uh, um, their their numbers so that you can tell whether a call or message is really coming from a bank. Uh, to uh, talk about this problem um, and uh, the proposed solution, we have uh, Michael Gaisley, who's co-founder and managing director of uh, Network Box. Michael, good morning. Welcome back to Backchat. Yeah, good morning. So, uh, first of all, let's start with the problem itself. Just how serious is it? 
Well, it's, it's a very serious problem because you can see so many people do get successfully scammed. Um, it, it's quite frightening, but I think there's a there's a situation where when someone sees something on their phone or on a computer, they're almost more convinced that it's real than if a person told them. So there's this sort of bias towards believing it. Um, although there's an interesting twist quite recently where both in emails and in SMSs, um, they, you, know, you, you get a message which is quite obviously a scam. And then there's, a there, there's sort of a message right at the bottom saying, if you think this is a scam, click here and report it. And people come report it and, of course, then get scammed while they're reporting it. Um, so, yes, it's a pretty bad problem. Mike, you were mm -hmm. uh, laughing just now at the suggestion that people believe things more. That all well, I, I, I want to learn a bit more from Michael because my immediate message when I get an SMS claiming to be from a bank is to immediately delete it, um, even, if I, even if it was useful. The same with the emails. I automatically delete them because I'm suspicious of all of them. But um, how, how do people, how, how do these things come? Well, how are they worded? We are from HSBC, and we want you to click here? Well, I, I think these days, um, if, if they're trying to trick you directly, sort of frontline scamming you, um, they look at real messages, and then they mimic them. So as a person, and in fact, it's even worse, because SMS was created in 1992, so the first one was sent in December 1992. Um, and as an older technology, it lacks a lot of security features. Um, so it doesn't have encryption, it doesn't uh, authenticate who really sent it and so on. And what's even worse is if you let the header sort of say that it's from HSBC or the Standard Chartered Bank or Citibank or whichever you know bank it is, right. um, it will often insert itself in a chain of messages you've received from the real bank. Oh, I see. So the, the, the spoofing is successful enough to get it into the get it in, in with the real bank's messages. So it's yes. very Similar difficult. To email. Then. I mean, you know, email and SMS, they're both lethal in the sense that they're so old. They don't have the security features which are necessary to protect us in 2023. So the solution, uh, I mean, the uh, Office of the Communications Authority, I think they said banks are going to have to register the numbers they're going to use. Is, is, is that, is that going to work? Well, I mean, it's going to be working a lot better than if there's no checks, that's for sure. I mean, you know, we're, we're, in, we're in a world where um, security is just largely ignored. And I think that, uh, much as I hate to say it, it is time the government stepped in. But, but how's that going to work? I mean, if I get an SMS saying the genuine number, source number from our bank is as follows, that might itself not be true. No, no. What's ha what, what they're proposing is actually that it gets filtered out um, before it even gets to you. So if you get a message from a bank, it can only be from a registered bank because all other inverted comma bank messages will get blocked. Okay, that sounds a bit more reassuring. <clears throat> I have a lot of trouble. I'm from a different generation. I have a lot of trouble with online banking anyway, especially when it says... Um, You've got to generate a, a, a password, and then you get a password on your by SMS, and then you've got a time limit to type in that password. 
I mean, is, is that... Well, all... no, that, that's not your password. That's a dual-factor authentication. <laughs> so you're getting an extra PIN number, which lasts for, say, 30 seconds. Yes, and that, that's the trouble. And you've got to type that in as well as your password. Right, and all you need is one misstep, and then you have to send for another one. Yes. <laughs> but uh, that, that, that's actually another way to sort of put a plaster on a system that's just out of date. Now, what would you suggest, Michael Casely, as a more radical solutions? Well, I, I, I think that um, step by step, they are, they are making uh, a sort of a correct decision in that it's better to filter out all the sort of obvious scams on behalf of the public rather than um, either insist on, you know, you, you can only use a, a secure app from HSBC, say, and then half the people you're dealing with will not download it, will not use it, will not understand it, and so on. Um, or you sort of just leave SMS open. So, I mean, I do agree with the move. It's better to filter out all the obvious scams because that's going to, you know, make things a lot more secure immediately. But you sound like you're saying that that's just the first step. Yes. I mean, ultimately, uh, that you know, you're going to need to use a proper authenticated system that's... Uh, downloaded from the bank and it's completely separate from you know sms and emails and other things that are just insecure to start with how can we be sure that this the, the thing we are downloading is the real one well that's a very good question too and i think in general um there, there's an important lesson where people need to if they're going to complain about something or download something or communicate with the bank they need to go online and find the actual number or the contact um, themselves. Don't trust what you're told in the message. Um, it's amazing how many people fall for clicking on, you know, the, 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 the number to call from the message that they're being scammed on. So, you know, you're, you're sort of double-checking with the, with the guy that's cheating you whether he's cheating you. You know, and surprise, surprise, that doesn't work out very well. Surprise, surprise, he agrees that you're not being cheated exactly. even though he's the one doing it. Yes. Oh, boy, uh, it's not going to get easy. if you easy. go online and you find the correct number for HSBC and you call them, then they can confirm, oh, we never sent that, you know, so... It makes sense to, to get the right number in the first place. You can spend a lot of time online waiting for those numbers to answer, though. Yes, um, but that, that's, yeah, that, I think that's a whole other program about the, <laughs> the, the quality of, of customer service rather than the security. Yeah, but I mean, if I get an SMS or an email saying, hey, call this number and everything will be wonderful, um, and I go on the bank's website... I hope it's the real bank website, yes. and find a number, and I call that number. But if it, oh, golly. But if, I mean, for example, if you get something querying your credit card, um, there's a number on the back of your credit card to call. So yes. it's, it's far safer to call the one that's printed on the back of your credit card than the one the scammer is telling you to call at the bottom of his scam. Right. Now, these scammers are not going to go away. No. Um, and if you, you block off one channel, they're presumably just going to look for other channels instead. And what, what, what we should we be watching out for going forward? Well, I think the, I think the single biggest problem is we're all busy 
um, you know, we, we get some kind of message. Um, sometimes the message might be scary. You know, imagine you suddenly get an SMS and it says, oh, you better call the bank because there's been a suspicious uh, transaction and it's for, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or something that's a huge amount. Um, it sort of presses your panic button and, and, and you're calling and pressing the link and doing all kinds of things. And I, I think you need to take a breath and uh, a bit like an airline pilot, you know, you sort of want to take a breath and and, and, and uh, sort of calm down before you take your next action, because what the scammer wants is you to be in a panic and not think. Yes. I mean, I, I often get emails telling me you need to revalidate your uh, password. Yes. Click here. Or, uh, or your email system is going to be cancelled if you don't reconfirm yep. it in the next 24 hours, you know, that kind of thing. Yep, I get a lot of those. I delete them all. Is that the right thing to do? Well, I think it is the right thing to do, but it's also if you are using an email system that's third party, um, it, it's once again worth double checking with the, the original um, you know, provider so that you, you don't end up losing your email. But uh, it just seems highly unlikely to me that any such message would be real. So your approach of deleting them is, is perhaps one of the safer approaches. Now, we haven't really talked about WhatsApp. I'm sure I'm not the only WhatsApp user to have got an absolute... Cert- I mean, not so much banks, but in uh, sort of spam messages generally uh, from uh, literally over the last six months. Um, it, do you have any thoughts on this? Is, is something going yeah, on? I, I think if you get something on WhatsApp or Telegram or Signal or anything that, that's encrypted end-to-end, and it purports to be from a bank, uh, I, I would just delete it and block it because I, I can't imagine that any bank is going to be uh, sending messages via that. Okay, but how about more generally the issue of sort of um, spam being pushed out by these channels? And well, if they're offering you a job or if they're offering you, you know, a way to invest or whatever, I would still use your approach of just uh, blocking it and deleting it because you just can't trust anything that, that comes via those channels. That's right. I get them. They say, can, I, can we talk to you about a job opportunity? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, there's just absolutely no way to identify who's really at the other end, so I just wouldn't take the chance. Right. I hope I'm not missing any job I mean, we do see, at least in some emails, Michael Casey, that they're now, the email systems are now quite effective in filtering out. I mean, some email accounts, I hardly see any spam because it's all, it's all pulled out before it reaches me, but um, other channels like WhatsApp don't seem to be capable of doing this. Well, on emails, um, th- th- there seems to be a magic number. I mean, at Networkbox, we uh, do have anti-spam as one of our services. And for whatever reason, it's sort of like one of these cosmic magic numbers where we can block 99.69%. But as you get any more than that, you start to risk blocking a real mail. Um, but if you block any less than that, obviously you're letting through more mail uh, spams than, than is necessary. So um, you can block almost all of it, but never all of it. Okay, and are these kind of spams just going to continue exponentially increasing? Is this, <clears throat> is this just the reality that we all have to live with? Oh, well, um, if, if you had a system that was properly authenticated and you really knew who the sender was and so on, and, and technologies like that do exist, but the problem is how common is it? Is everyone using it? And that's the problem. You know, we've all got used to systems that are 20-odd years old that don't have the encryption or authentication and all the rest built in. And until we sort of wean ourselves away from those and have properly secure systems, um, we're always going to live with that fraction of a percent getting through and then having to make a judgment to keep ourselves safe. 
Okay, thank you very much. That's a slightly despondent note to end on. That's uh, Mike, Michael Gaisley. Michael Gaisley is the uh, coordinate, uh, the co-founder and managing director of Network Box. Uh, before we finish, uh, let me just uh, try and bring in a, uh, quickly uh, a WhatsApp message. Uh, sorry, a Facebook message from TC about our earlier topic on uh, university rankings. He said university rankings are only a tool for those that ranked highly to charge high higher tuition. I graduated from a university ranked highly within Canada, but I didn't feel the quality of education is better than other less-known territory tertiary institutes in the country. And he actually goes on to say that he wished he'd um, studied in Hong Kong instead. Well, there you have it indeed. Um, yeah, I was, I'm um, still scared by that banking <laughs> stuff, though. I <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 you never t touch these messages, Mike. No. I absolutely going to continue not touching them. <laughs> okay, that's it for today. Um, we will be back tomorrow. <laughs>